There have been some very frivolous wars throughout history. There was the Pig War of 1859, when an American settler shot a British wild boar on the island of San Juan. I wonder what the average settler, American or British, really thought. I wonder if they really cared about that pig. I wonder if they really felt like they had to choose a side in that battle. Or take the Nika Revolt of 532 AD, when a rebellion had to be put down by force in Constantinople because many of the public's favorite charioteers were not released from their death penalty. Was that really a cause worth dying for? Or consider the hostilities that broke out when a soldier chased his stray dog across the border of Greece and Bulgaria. Was that a cause worth dying for? Or the Toledo War, where both Ohio and Michigan raised militias to protect their claim to that territory. When we lived in Ohio, we heard it put this way, Michigan and Ohio fought over Toledo and Ohio lost. having been in Toledo. There's some truth to that statement. Uh, there are other more significant conflicts, though, where people on both sides of the issue, military and soldier alike, have wondered what they were getting into. Was this worth it? Was this a war that had to be waged? The Vietnam War, of course, in our recent national memory, was plagued by this existential crisis. And we, we know from history, on that macro scale, what that division and confusion, lack of leadership and direction and mission focus did to our country. But imagine on even a smaller scale. My wife and I watched a, a movie a couple years ago about, about a lost battalion in World War I. They were on a mission. This battalion was going with other battalions to accomplish some objective, but they got surrounded and their communication lines were cut off from the rear. They were directionless. As it was, they couldn't complete the mission. And soon, survival just became the mission. Just to get out of there would be a victory. We might be tempted to think some of those thoughts, maybe ask some of those same questions in our contemporary climate. And I mean specifically the, the spiritual plane of the world that we live in. Do you wonder if some of these spiritual battles are worth fighting for? Do you think there's too much being made of Christianity versus everything else? Do you wish you didn't have to choose sides? Maybe you could duck your head, play nice with both sides, wait it out, and maybe everyone else would just simmer down. Do you ever feel that you, or maybe the church, has lost sight of the mission? That there's been mission drift? Do you wonder if you ever knew what it was? Or do you feel like that lost battalion? That you're surrounded by the enemy, and the mission has just become survival? I want to drop us into the narrative of the New Testament, the beginning of Acts, a situation where I imagine the disciples were thinking some of these very same things and asking these same questions. This year, the ministry of our pulpit has been aimed at the theme of God's blueprints for the church. Pastor Mike started us off with several foundational aspects of church life. 
And then he finished with Jesus' final sermon before the cross, where he gave instructions and prayed for the apostles and for the church. Pastor Matt recently took us through the first half of Philippians, looking at that specific church in Philippi, what that means for us as a church. And now we're going to start to look at the book of Acts. Over the next five weeks, we're going to look at some of the major themes of the book of Acts and what that means for us, how that shapes us as a church. Before we dive into this this morning, please pray with me one more time. God, we thank you for the church. And there are many things that we can think or, or mean by that. And we pray that you would use your word to, to focus those thoughts this morning about what you want the church to be. And that you would help us to carry that out. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look here as we begin in Acts chapter 1. What is happening after Jesus' death and resurrection? We're dropping into the narrative of the New Testament. And Luke begins this section of the story with these words in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them, sorry, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This story is one of Luke's narratives. This is his second book. We know the other one is called the Gospel of Luke. It's one of the four Gospels that tells the story of Jesus' life on earth. But that this is the second volume. This is a sequel that tells us that this, uh, this is an important part of the story. The Gospels were not the end of the story. The stories of Jesus being a good moral person and a wise teacher were not the end of the story. Even the narrative of Jesus' death and resurrection was not the end of the story. And by that I don't mean that that was not important. I believe that that is the pivotal event of all human history. That is the climax of human history, Jesus' death and resurrection. But if you remember back to literature class with me when you chart out a storyline, the climax isn't at the end. You have the climax and then you have the falling action. And that's where we find ourselves. Excuse me. Find ourselves in this continuing story. He said he began to te- deal with all that Jesus did and teach, but it didn't end there. We see here after the resurrection, he presented himself alive after his suffering for 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. We see a picture of that in Luke 24, where Jesus appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and instructed them. About everything that the prophets had to say about the Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. We find this ourselves here between the Passover, the holiday in which Jesus was crucified, and the next Jewish holiday, what is called Pentecost, or the first fruits of the harvest. It was 50 days after the Feast of Passover. And in this beginning time, right after the 
crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, there's this new reality. There is a collection of perhaps even 500 believers in Christ. Acts is also written not just as a narrative, historical account, but also as an apologetic, an argument for the church. When Luke wrote his first account, the Gospel of Luke, he introduced it to his audience, uh, a man named Theophilus, this way. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. He wanted there to be a historically reliable account, uh, an argument for the legitimacy of the person of Jesus Christ. And we apply that also to his account of the church. This is a legitimate reality, that, this, that the church is an actual outflow of the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's not just a bunch of wahoos running around the Roman Empire. There is a, an orderly flow from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to this new movement sweeping the Roman Empire. So to the skeptic and also to the believer, there is this argument. To the believer, this is what Jesus died and rose again for. In this setting, the disciples are wondering what is next. They had a crisis when Jesus died, and for three days they wondered, what is next? This was not what they had expected. But then he rose again, and now he's spent 40 days instructing them and teaching them. Well, they're still asking themselves, what is next? We see that down in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time... Restore the kingdom to Israel. Jesus, in a normal response to his disciples, he had somewhat of a mysterious response. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed on his own authority. So they're wondering, after Jesus' death and resurrection, what's next? They're thinking, This is the kingdom. Jesus came and died paying for sin. He beat sin, and then he resurrected, and he beat death, and now he's going to fix everything and put everything back in order. And they're right to expect that. That is prophesied in the Old Testament. And there's a specific expectation that a part of that reality is going to be the restoration of the Israel throne, the throne of Israel, the, the throne of King David. And they're thinking, that's what's next. But Jesus gives them a little bit of a different picture. Instead of staying and restoring the kingdom, Jesus is going to build a church of witnesses. He says, not yet to the kingdom. He doesn't say no. He just says, not yet. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Again, this doesn't mean that God is temporarily not ruling and reigning as a sovereign Lord over all his creation, we believe that at all times he is the sovereign Lord of his creation. But there is a time here where Jesus is still waiting to come and physically rule and restore things on earth. We believe that will begin with a thousand years of the restored Israel throne where we will reign with Jesus and then that will continue on with Jesus reigning for all of eternity. But that's not yet. 
Jesus said, there's the Spirit coming. Told them in verse 4 and 5, wait for the Spirit, but it's not for the kingdom. It's for something else. And he expands on that down in verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Not a kingdom where a king sets everything right and rules from the top down, but a witness program, if you will, a program of us staying where we're at in the world that we live in, these apostles staying where they're at with nothing changed as far as kingdoms and thrones go, but being witnesses to the king. 2 Corinthians 5 pictures it as an ambassadorship that we are representing someone that from our home country, that we're in a foreign place representing our homeland and the king that we belong to. And it gets this picture of, a, of an infiltration or underground resistance movement that you're in a, a foreign country working on behalf of your home country. We are in this world. And Jesus said, be my witnesses. And then what did he do? He left. The next verse says he left. He's saying, this is where you're supposed to be my witnesses. He's not just saying, start here in Jerusalem and then go to the end of the earth and then, and then you're done. He's saying, be my witnesses from here to there and everywhere in between. Everywhere on the face of this earth, you're supposed to be witnesses, ambassadors pointing to the real king. One more thing we learn from these verses about a big picture of what is happening happens after Christ ascends. And two angels come, and they speak to his disciples as they look on. Down in verse 11, they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back. In that, there is a promise and a warning. A promise. There is an expiration date on this phase, this phase where the church is taking root and growing, where we're witnesses in a foreign land. There's an expiration date on that. The king is coming back. He will set up his kingdom. He will fulfill his promises. All sad things will come untrue. But there's also a warning in that, in that reality that Jesus is coming back. And that's somewhat of the the phrasing that the angels say to the men of Galilee, why are you just standing there? They're saying, don't dally. The king is coming back. Don't be found lax and lazy. Be his witnesses. Jesus echoes this in Revelation 22. He says, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. So in Jesus' somewhat mysterious way, as he does, he adjusts the disciples' expectations. He again corrects their misunderstanding of of the kingdom. And he, he gives them a different picture of what is going to happen on this world stage, this historical stage. Uh, it's like when you 
get your phone or your device or GPS and you chart a course and you get it and then you zoom out. I like to zoom out. I like to know where I'm going. I don't just need to know each of the individual turns. I want to know the whole big picture. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And he's telling them, you don't know the times and seasons. You don't know, you don't know the expiration date. You don't know when we're going to get there, but that is the destination. And I don't know about you, but you get in that route in your program and you get to that last turn, you know, okay, I don't know even, I don't even know how many miles is left, but I know if I get on this road, I'm going to get to where I'm going. This is the route. And this is what Jesus is saying. You, you don't know how many days or years or centuries the church has left, but this is the route beyond this path. Unfortunately, when we look at that map, we also see, as I've kind of alluded to already, that this route is directly through enemy territory. Instead of staying and restoring the kingdom, Jesus will build a church of witnesses in a hostile, lost, and broken world. The world that we live in, the world that his apostles stayed in, the world in which we are to be witnesses, is not a passively lost world. This is not neutral ground. This is not Switzerland or no man's land. We are in a hostile world. The whole world is broken. All people who are born in sin are active rebels against God. Romans 5 tells us that even we who have turned to faith in Christ, before that point, we were called enemies of God. We were active enemies, rebels against God. This is the world in which we are to be witnesses. This should create in us a wartime mentality. To follow Jesus is not a passive reality. It is an active wartime responsibility. We must not be idle. We see that throughout the New Testament. 2 Timothy 2. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. There's wrestling. There's warfare going on. This is is what it means to be a witness, to follow that path that Christ has charted for his church. We realize that. We think maybe we can identify some of the despair of the disciples. They are thinking, he's going to set up the kingdom. And Jesus said, no, you're going to stay here in this lost and broken world. There might be only 500 of you, and it's you against the world. And then Jesus goes and ascends and leaves the world. I wonder if part of what they were thinking when they were just standing there watching the clouds after he left was, is this what it was like when the glory departed Israel? Has God left us, left us alone? Maybe they felt like that lost battalion, surrounded, cut off, and then their commanding officer walks out on them, leaderless, directionless. The Pevensies stumbled around when Aslan wasn't guiding them. What is the fellowship without Gandalf? Perhaps you wonder, 
as it relates to you and the church. Why didn't Jesus stay? Wouldn't it have been better considering what we're up against? How we're supposed to face this hostile world? How we're supposed to stay on mission when we're so prone to wander? Maybe you've taken stock and you realize that you're not up for this task. And that reality brings us really to the thrust of this sermon and the title I had for the sermon and why I think the book of Acts starts with these two events. We're looking at the ascension and we'll be looking at Pentecost in a moment. The big idea we have going so far with the three points so far, after his death and resurrection, instead of staying and restoring the kingdom, Jesus will build a church of witnesses in a hostile, lost, and broken world. That's us. We're the witnesses. How can we do that? The answer, the church's only power, intercession, and indwelling. Jesus will do this by leaving, ascending, to intercede and mediate on behalf of his followers and by sending the Holy Spirit to indwell and empower his followers. Expand on those last two points here. Jesus will help us on this mission, first of all, by leaving. Sounds counterintuitive, but he's leaving. Verse 9, when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and the cloud took him out of their sight. We understand down in verse 12 that this is from the Mount of Olives. They returned from the Mount of Olives, it says there. And that is where Jesus will return. He left. Even though his leaving is connected to the sending of the Spirit, which we'll get to in a minute, it's not as if Jesus' job was done and he's leaving to make room for the next guy. That's not what's happening here. He's leaving to go and do something else. He's leaving to go and continue his ministry. And the book of Hebrews really gives us great insight to what that is. Hebrews 11, I'm sorry, Hebrews 8, rather, verse 1 and 2 says, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord sent up, set up. Jesus went, left earth, returned to heaven in the role of a priest, one who is going to offer a sacrifice on behalf of those he represents. See again in Hebrews 1, 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He offered purification for sins, and then he sat down. You do not see that phrase in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were repeated sacrifices that had to be made. Sacrifices over and over, many different kinds, different animals, different places, different altars even that they offered sacrifices on. And in all that temple compound, the tabernacle before it, there was not a piece of furniture on which a priest could sit down. Jesus entered heaven, offered sacrifice, purification for sins, and sat down. He did it once, and the job was done. The forgiveness for our sins is accomplished. The propitiation is done one time. He's able to approach in the role of a priest 
because of his role as the lamb. He's both priest and lamb, priest and sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9, he entered once for all, once for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So again, he only offered his sacrifice once. That was enough. But his ministry to us still continues beyond that. There is an ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ as our Savior in heaven today. Hebrews 7 tells us about that. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He lives to make intercession continually. Not a one-time single event, but continual intercession. That's echoed in Romans chapter 8. Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Present tense, is interceding for us. This is described in John MacArthur's recent book on doctrine this way. He presently intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father, praying for our greatest spiritual benefit, defending us against our accuser, sanctifying our prayers, and ministering to us in our time of need. What does it mean that he's praying for us? A great picture of that is the high priestly prayer of John 17. Pastor Mike preached through just a few weeks ago. Jesus had a lengthy prayer on behalf of his apostles, his disciples. And those are the types of prayers he continually offers on our behalf before the throne of God. What does it mean that he sanctifies our prayers? He perfects them. He, help us, he helps us pray what we should have prayed. Or is the way J.I. Packer says it, God answers the prayer that we ought to have made rather than the prayer we did make. What does it mean that he is an advocate for our righteousness? 1 John 2 says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What is he advocating for? Who is he advocating against? We're told in Revelation 12 that Satan is the accuser of the brothers. Satan is repeatedly accusing believers in God's presence. We get a picture of that in Job, the beginning of the book of Job, when God actually entertains Satan into his throne room, and Satan accuses Job. He says, did you see that? He doesn't really love you. He just likes that you gave him all these good, kind things. Satan does that to the brothers. He says, did you see that guy? He doesn't really love you. Did you see what he just did? He's not really following you. He's selfish. And Jesus stands up as our defense attorney, as our advocate in the courtroom of God. And he says, not, yeah, he did that, but you see this good thing he did too. Or yeah, he did that bad thing just now, but you see this long trajectory, long, he's got a good track record of good things. He doesn't advocate for us like that. He says, yes, he's a sinner, but he has my righteousness credited to his account. When the father looks at him, he sees me. This is why we sang the song we did earlier today. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. 
a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No matter Satan's accusations, he cannot successfully cast us out of God's presence because Jesus stands on our behalf. Another great hymn we sing sometimes, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. And we're reminded then in Hebrews, again, Hebrews 4, what it means that he, as our intercessor, offers us help. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus lives to make intercession. He's actively serving Christians in heaven. There is no time we cannot draw near to the throne of grace and find grace to help in time of need. Another great picture of this intercession is found back in the book of Zechariah chapter 3. I don't have time to go there. I encourage you to read that at another time. Zechariah chapter 3. So the answer to the question, how are we supposed to do this thing that Jesus told us to do? How are we supposed to accomplish this mission as the church? First answer, Jesus left so he could go and intercede for us. Second answer, by sending the Holy Spirit to indwell and empower believers. If you will, turn with me now to chapter 2 of the book of Acts. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house while they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were gathered again, as a small group of believers, they were doing what Jesus told them to do, waiting. They were not witnesses yet. They did not have the Spirit. But the Spirit came. This is the same Spirit that empowered Jesus in his earthly ministry. It's the same phrasing used in Luke 4, after Jesus was tempted in the desert. It says, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. That's what Jesus promised his disciples, his followers. You will receive power. The same power that empowered Jesus' earthly ministry is now coming and filling all of his followers. We see it in the Old Testament, too. In certain times, the Spirit was given for certain tasks to certain people. Samson was given to Saul and David. Saul, we know, had the Spirit taken from him because he fell, he sinned. And David feared that. In Psalm 51, he said, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. We see here the Spirit comes to dwell and to stay in followers, in believers. It doesn't come and then leave at another time. The Spirit comes to stay. 
And what does it come to do? We get a hint of this in the vision of fire. It says, divided tongues of fire appeared. Fire is the most common visual manifestation in the Old Testament for God. God being present in fire. You know, the the burning bush, the, the column of fire. This is a visual demonstration. This is the work of God happening here. These aren't just a bunch of crazy people. There's something serious happening here. There is light and illumination with fire. Holy Spirit comes to give light and illumination to all of his followers. To help us to see God's word. To understand it in ways we couldn't before. To help us to see the world that we live in. Let me give you a quick other list of what the Spirit comes to do when he comes to indwell. He comes to enable belief in cold hearts. He comes to pour love into our hearts. He comes to give us assurance. The Spirit empowers our prayers. The Spirit revives the church. The Spirit writes the law on our hearts. The Spirit creates good works for us to do. The Spirit causes us to abound in hope. It convicts us of sin. It guides us through a world of idolatrous noise. It strengthens us through spiritual disciplines of prayer and reading scripture. The Spirit counsels us through conflict. It comforts us in our deepest pains, in our darkest moments. The Spirit gives us gifts for the growth and the vitality in the Christian life and in the church. The Spirit came in power. It didn't come quietly. It didn't come unassumingly. It came in power. It came with this loud noise of wind and the visual demonstration of the fire. And many others saw it. Verse 5 says, there, was a, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they're amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in his own native language? The sound of wind, the fire, and now these disciples, the followers of Christ, all speaking in tongues that they're not native to them. Tongues, languages they do not know. This is a sign to the Jews. The Jews especially sought signs and wonders as confirmation this was God's work. Well, here it is. This is Jesus. This is God at work. This is a, an event and a type of power and demonstration that we don't expect to be repeated. This is something like the ascension of Jesus Christ and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were pivotal events at the beginning of the church that set up the church. And they're not events to be repeated. We can't go back and crucify Jesus again. We also see that for the outsiders, there were different responses. Verse 12 says, all were amazed and perplexed. There are different responses. Some said, what does this mean? They thought, there's something going on here and I need to know more about it. What does this mean? But others dismissed it. They said, they are filled with new wine. They're just drunk. I wonder what your response is. That's just crazy. That's fiction. That's fable. There's nothing to see here. Or do you think there's something going on there? I need to find out more. I encourage you, find out more. 
Talk to someone. Talk to me. And if you've already been there and you've found out more, you know the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me challenge you again. Even though Pentecost is not to be repeated, the work of the Spirit is not relegated to a single event in human history or the history of the church. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be people marked by the Spirit. Not in signs of power, but in walking in the Spirit. And the Spirit producing all these things that we just listed off in us. Lastly, this demonstration of the Holy Spirit coming served a prophetic fulfillment. We see when all these languages are being spoken, we see the beginning of the prophecies of, of all nations coming together. We see even a beginning of the, the restoration of Israel. Interesting to note, there were already Jews gathered from all around the world. There are all the Jews that were there in Jerusalem to hear this were from all around the world. But that did not fulfill the prophecy. That did not bring about the conclusion of the end of times. No random gathering of Jews will do. Only as the Spirit draws the Jews and all nations to himself. And when he does, there will be praise and worship in every tongue. We see the beginning of that here. Many different tongues speaking of God's works. The curse of Babel is being undone. It's a preview of the consummation we see in the throne room of God in Revelation chapter 5, where every tribe and tongue and nation and the Lord, I'm sorry, nation and people will sing praises to the Lord. What we see here and what we have in the church is the first fruits of the Spirit, a taste of what the Spirit will do. And it's happening here in Acts because he's going to do it through the church. God is going to work in the church to bring about that conclusion where people from every tribe and tongue and nation will sing the praises of their creator. So let's put all these together, all these thoughts, into one big idea. And I do mean big idea. After his death and resurrection, instead of staying and restoring the kingdom, Jesus will build a church of witnesses in a hostile, lost, and broken world by leaving to intercede and mediate on behalf of his followers and sending the Holy Spirit to indwell and empower his followers. Understand this big picture. Remember that Jesus is coming back. Draw near to the throne of grace and walk in the Spirit. Let's pray. We thank you for your word that tells us what this church is, that tells us what we are supposed to do. We thank you for the hope of Jesus, our intercessor, living to serve us in your presence. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who empowers and indwells us to do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.